Hey everyone, this is Chad. Thanks for stopping by to listen to our newest sermon. It will play in just a minute. But before it does, I want to invite you to be a part of something really cool. At Creekside, we partner with a great organization called Embrace Oregon to help support and bless foster kids and families in our area. During the Christmas season, we place special emphasis on creating welcome boxes for kids. You can learn about those at creeksidebiblechurch.org slash welcome boxes. But let me just say they're an incredible way to bring joy to a foster kid. We know that not all of you or even most of you who listen to this podcast are in our area. So we want to invite you to contribute to this project by donating. You can go to creeksidebiblechurch.org slash give. And if you select Embrace Oregon under the heading four, then all of that money will go directly to creating welcome boxes. We would absolutely love to have you partner with us in this. Again, thanks for listening. I hope this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for Jesus. I have been known to declare something as dumb without ever considering its dumbness. And uh, if you are close to me, then you know that I, I have opinions on things that I don't know anything about. I uh, like certain things, and if something else comes up, I just deem it either the worst thing ever or terrible in comparison to something else, you know. And uh, I think there's a little bit of this tendency in all of us. I'm probably an extreme example, but there's a little bit of a tendency to reject that which is new for that which is comfortable to us. Uh, There's a tendency to reject a a new idea or a new way of doing things or, you know, something that perhaps is better for what we've always done and, and specifically for the things that we already love. It's like if you're going out to a restaurant and uh, and you're with a friend that goes to the same restaurant and you've never been there together before and they're like, look, this is the greatest thing on the menu. It's so good. It's awesome. And, and a lot of people would just be like, well, I got my thing. You know, like there's already my thing and, and I eat this when I come to this restaurant and, and that's it. That's just the way it is. And so you, you may perhaps be missing out on the greatest food that's ever been prepared and cooked in, in the history of the world. But you already have you already have your thing, you know, and so you're kind of locked in and you already love something and so you reject something else, even if that something else might be better. And this is what happens with Jesus. Uh, last week I, I said that it bothers me when people reject Jesus without ever considering Jesus. And I believe that one of the reasons this happens, and even if you're already a Christian, one of the reasons that you reject the things of Jesus, the ways of Jesus, uh, sometimes the reason that you're disobedient to Jesus is, I think, because you already have a way, and you think the way that you're doing things, that you've always done things, that, that have just kind of been a part of your life forever, is the best way. 
You might even be able to connect this to the Christmas season because a lot of us at Christmas, we just lock into tradition, do we not? Like, there is no other way to do this because I've always done it this way and, and you can't change the potatoes and, and you can't you know, move that decoration over there and we need to be at this party at this time because this is the way it's always been done. But perhaps, you know, maybe, I don't know, you might get mad at me for this, but you're actually ruining your Christmas or you're making it not as good as it could be. But it shows the tendency to just embrace what we've already done, what we've always done, what we, what we love already for something that's new that we perhaps might not love. And I think that this tendency is why people reject Jesus. And I think it's why if you're a Christian, like I said, maybe you aren't embracing the life that Jesus wants you to live. You, you're stuck in, in the way you've always done things, and, and Jesus has something greater for you. And you might even know that Jesus has something else for you, but you don't really want to explore it because, because you like things the way that they are. And we're going to see this through John, and th- this, this idea that we love what we kind of know and we sometimes reject that which might be better and it applies to Jesus. We're going to see that in John three sixteen through 21. And John's really going to connect kind of that idea to Christmas and Jesus coming to the earth. And I think what we're going to see is super powerful and maybe even if we can do this uh, just a week before Christmas, a little bit convicting because it shows us that maybe we are rejecting what's better for what we, what we already like, and sometimes what we like, and John's going to describe it this way, is, is not good at all. It's actually bad. It's evil. So here's the setup, and maybe you don't know this because uh, you've, you've heard John 3.16 before, but maybe you don't know what's happened right before John 3.16. Jesus has this super weird conversation with this guy named Nicodemus, and in the conversation, he, he basically says to Nic- Nicodemus, uh, you need to be born again to have eternal life, and Nicodemus is like, well, how can you be born? born a second time. You know, he doesn't get that Jesus is speaking uh, metaphorically. And, and so Jesus goes on to explain that, that you need to have like a new life in Jesus. And then Jesus says that he will be lifted up, which is a reference to uh, the cross and, and the fact that he will die on that cross and that people who believe in him and what happens on that cross can have this eternal life. And so there's this kind of conversation that probably just confused Nicodemus. And, and then after following that, where Jesus said, you must be born again, and I'm going to be lifted up. And if you believe in me, then we get to John 3, 16, the famous verse that says in the NIV, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, you've heard this a million times, right? Like, people write this on their eyes and their eye black at football games, and there was that famous guy who used to hold the sign at every sporting event. I mean, John 3.16 is, is like a part of American culture, but what's cool is that this verse has 
so much more meaning than I think we even give it credit for. And we give it credit for quite a bit of meaning, right? Like this is the kind of the go-to verse for what it means to be a Christian. But even, even deeper, there's, there's more to it. And, and there's, there's other layers. This is almost always true with John as he writes his book. Like you uncover one layer and it's beautiful. And then you're like, oh, there's another layer to this. And, and so let me just point out a couple of things that, that maybe you've never noticed about John 3.16 before. First of all, he begins it by saying, for God so loved the world, and that's something we all accept is true, right? It seems like even atheists who say they don't believe in God almost still accept like, oh, well, God loves everybody, but he doesn't exist. You know, it's almost like that mentality for even the staunchest rejecter of God. There's this concept that if there is a God, then God, that God loves everybody, every person, every nation, every tribe, every language, every race, God loves them, but Here's the radical part. This is an idea that is unique to Christianity when it first started. Even the Jewish people who would have made up most of John's audience, you know what they thought? God loves Jewish people. God loves the Israelite nation. God loves us. And every other nation had their gods, and their gods, you know who their gods would have loved? They would have loved their nation, their people, the people who thought just like them, the people who believed just like them. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and he teaches, and he lives, and he dies, and he rises again, and then his followers write down this this and, and a bunch of other stuff like it that, that says this crazy, what would have been a crazy thing, we all accept it as true now, and that is that, that God loves all people. It just wasn't a belief before Jesus was born. Now, I know now it's hard even to go back because that's the foundation of so much, right, in our world today. Like, so much of what we think and how we view people and the way we talk about interacting with others and even our view of God and our theology, it all, all kind of begins with this idea that every person is loved by God. I mean, we think about people's worth and value, and, and that's wrapped up in that God loves them. And so even if they're like the worst, you know, even if they're horrible people, well, God loves them, and so there should be some mercy and grace. And even if you're not a Christian, you know, it's like, well, I should at least a little care about them, and I should probably be nice to them too. And it's all, all of that is just, just begins because Jesus comes to earth, and in doing so, he says, God loves every person. Not just people that look like you, or talk like you, or think like you, but every person is loved by God. This is incredible, and if you're a Christian, you know, it's easy to just skip right through John 3.16. I've heard it before, and it's even easier to go right through Christmas and say, well, that's cool. I already knew Jesus was born, and I have a million traditions that I need to get to. But you need to just remember that the idea of God loving everybody is an idea that began when Jesus was born in a manger. And we see that even in what he says next. For God so loved the world, 
do you want proof of that? Because all the Jewish people would have been going, no, you know, he loves us. And if people will get on our side and our team, then, then he'll, they'll love us. And if you think like us and, and look like us, then, then God will love you. But John says, for God so loved the world, that, and here's the proof, that he gave his one and only son. Gave his one and only son. And, and this, this, I just, it's such a huge statement that God gave because in just two words, one little teeny tiny phrase, John says something to us that is so important because in that little phrase, in those two words, he reminds us of two just very important parts of Jesus' life. One, that he was born, that he had a life, that God, as we've seen in the series already, that God came to earth in the person of Jesus. God gave, he came, he was born of a virgin named Mary, and he lived a life. He was a child. God gave when God came, but also this idea of God giving is connected to the cross. It's pretty clear. God gave his son Jesus. That means that he allowed for Jesus to die on a cross, and he allowed for that to happen because of our sins. You see like the two main Christian holidays in one tiny little phrase, right? Like God gave, Christmas, God gave Good Friday, which we celebrate a couple days before Easter when we think about Jesus dying a wretched death on a cross. Now, it's really important that we just quickly kind of talk about the Trinity and, and how this all works because it's confusing language, right? Like God declares, I came to earth and then God says, I sent my son to earth and that feels a little weird, but we believe because the Bible teaches in, in a Trinitarian God that God is three persons in one and it's not something that can really be explained at all. In fact, our very own Matt Connery wrote his dissertation on this, and, and he wrote like 80 pages, and I can sum them up in just about one sentence for you. I don't know why he wasted so much time, but here it is. We can't really understand it, but it's true. So the idea is that God uh, is three distinct individual beings, but they are all one God. They are all connected, they are all equal, they all have the same purpose and all and the same ends. And so God is not contradicting himself when he says, I came to earth and I sent my son to come to earth because of what we believe is taught in scripture, a, a doctrine that is called the Trinity. And so when we look and we think about God giving, we are still talking about, and I know this is super weird, we are still talking about God coming to earth. And so God says through John 8, here's what you need to know. I love all people. You want proof? I came there. I was born of a virgin. I lived a life on that planet. And then even more, I was raised up by being nailed to a cross for your sins, for your sins, and not only for your sins, because this is key to the art of the passage, but for the sins of all people. For God so loved, what does he say, the world, everybody, that he gave his son. This is a big deal. Jesus, and it's clear here, didn't just die for some people's sins. He died for all people's sins. It didn't matter if you were Jew or Gentile. It didn't matter your race or your ethnicity or your background or the sins that you have committed or the things that you had done wrong. None of it mattered. God came, and then he died 
for you, and it proved his love. Now, here's the reason that he came. It's so key. He came so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He came so that we might live forever. Now, there's this this separation, there's this choice, this choice, it's condemnation or it's eternal life. And John puts these two against each other. You can be condemned forever or you can possess eternal life now. This is your choice. Now, eternal life, big deal in John. And, and sometimes we think of eternal life and we know that term and we've read John 3.16 and we think this means just that I will have life forever. Life will go on after I die. But for John, way bigger than that. Eternal life is not something that starts when we die. In fact, eternal life is something that begins the moment that we place our belief in Jesus. It is not something that starts after we die because John isn't just saying eternal in like it will go on forever. John is using this term uh, eternal life for something that we can possess. It's a life that is different than the life we have before belief. And in Jesus' words, it's as if we are born again and our new life is radically different. It's one where we are no longer slaves to sin. It's one where we can have joy that we couldn't have before and peace no matter what we go through. And it's one where we have hope in a future where we get to live forever. But it's also one where we have a relationship with God now that challenges us and changes us and moves us along in our daily lives. For John, eternal life is not this thing that you get someday. It's something that you can possess now. And I like that so much better. If you're anything like me, then this idea of just something you get after death, which it's so like out there, you know, it's so theoretical. It's so beyond what I can understand. Well, that sounds great, you know, but I don't know how that affects me now except for cool I don't get to die you know I get to live forever and there takes away some fear and it gives me some hope when relatives die but to know that my life can be radically changed now and in fact for me to know that my life has been radically changed because of Jesus and my belief in Jesus that I can connect with like really my bad days are not as bad because I have I possess eternal life through my belief in Jesus Really, I am more joyful because of my eternal life. Really, I don't do things that I would later regret because of my relationship with Jesus. Really, I am a better husband and a good dad because I have eternal life. It's not just something that starts in the future. And I think if we're going to like even celebrate Christmas or be the Christians that we ought to be, then we need to stop thinking about eternal life as something we get someday. I think a lot of Christians that I know think, well, Jesus will really start to influence me when I get to heaven. And for John, he's like, once you start your belief, you get a new life. In Jesus' words, you are born again. And in Paul's words, you become a new creation. And it's different for you. It's better for you. So if you're not a Christian, I just want to say, look, you got a choice according to John. You can look forward to condemnation or you can begin to possess eternal life now through belief. And if you're a Christian, then I would just say, like, look, you possess eternal life. 
And you need to think about that eternal life as a new life that has already started, and you need to live accordingly. This word belief is really interesting because it's, you know, something that we often just, we think belief, we think like, well, I believe it to be true, right? I mean, that's kind of, that's what belief means. Like, I think something, I affirm that something is right. But for the biblical authors, belief is so much bigger than that. In fact, this is so fascinating to me. An ancient document uses the word belief with the idea of possession. And so what it really means to believe in Jesus is to allow Jesus to possess you, to give your life to Jesus because you believe that he came and he died on a cross and he rose again so that you might have eternal life. You say, okay, I want that eternal life, Jesus. And so therefore, you can have my life so that I can have my new life. Now, let me just give you, there's this metaphor that's usually used as sitting on a chair if you're, maybe you've heard that before, and it's like, well, you can say you believe the chair will hold you, but until you sit on it, then you're not really placing your belief in it. It's an okay metaphor, but, but I like this one better um, because I created it. Uh, I'm deathly afraid of elevators, and uh, went to the Beaver game with Vic and Carolyn the other day, and Vic and Carolyn and Bren and my baby, they all got in an elevator, or actually I took Hazel with me, but they all got in an elevator, and I found stairs and, and went up. Uh, th- this fear is... is so strong that it's at times led to some weird situations. I was trying to visit somebody at the hospital at Meridian Park, and it seems to be literally impossible to take stairs to the second level. And so I'm like not even making this up. I spent 20 minutes trying to get to this person's room because there was an elevator that went directly from where I was parked pretty much to this person's room, just like that. I spent 20 minutes wandering around Meridian Park Hospital trying to find a way to get into the stairs and onto the stairs and get to this person's room. I just wandered, I wandered, I got lost. I was in areas I'm not sure if I was supposed to be there. Some people probably have infections because I was in spots that I wasn't supposed to be, coughing on stuff, you know? I mean, it it was a horrible experience. And, And what I think belief is, is closer to an elevator. Because everybody, you know, we can all look at a chair and go, well, I've sat in a chair a million times. But, but for me, an elevator is scarier. And I think belief is sometimes difficult. I think it's scary because it, like an elevator for me, probably not for you, you don't know exactly what it's going to lead to. You know where an elevator leads. I don't know where an elevator leads. I think I'm going to be stuck in an elevator and I'm going to die in there. That's what I think. I'm not scared of them falling. That sounds like a great outcome to me. You just crash. I have eternal life. I'll go to heaven. But don't leave me locked in there. That's the fear. But, but an elevator, you can go, well, that'll take me to my destination. And you can stand outside and say, I believe that'll get me to the second floor. Or you can make a decision to get into the elevator. Now, I understand, I understand that belief in something, placing your life in somebody's hands that you've never, that you maybe don't know very well, maybe Jesus is like a new thing to you to say, I will give you myself, is scary, like an elevator, not a chair, right? Like you walk in, you say, are the doors going to shut behind me and I'll be trapped and I don't know where this thing leads and what's on the second floor and how is this going to look? I think that is closer to belief because belief is not easy, sitting in a chair is. 
And it, here's, here's the thing about it. Getting to God is a lot like Meridian Park Hospital. You can't take the stairs. You cannot climb your way into a relationship with God. You cannot climb your way into eternal life. You will just, and I'm telling you, you will, you will, you will just wander around your entire life looking for this new life, looking for eternal life, thinking, well, if I just get a new job, if I just try this drug, if I just have a better romantic relationship, if I just move my furniture around, then I'll find that satisfaction that I've been looking for. I'll feel the hope and the comfort that I know is missing. You just keep climbing the stairs, but you'll never get what you want. The only way to get it is to say, yeah, it's scary, but I'm going to step into the elevator and we're going to see what happens. Because the choice is condemnation or eternal life. Those are the only choices. Condemnation or eternal life. And you have to do something that I believe is scary. And I think Christians too often minimize the fear of believing. You know, it's like we're just saying, oh, believe and everything's great and you get to go to heaven. Like, yeah, that's great, but my family won't like me anymore and, and, and I won't be able to hang out with the same friends maybe anymore. And well, my weekends consist of getting smashed and most of the Christians I know don't. And so I'm, my weekends look a lot worse now if I get in that elevator. You know, these are real fears. But I want you to know that I get the fear, but I also want you to know that I believe there is no other way. The Bible teaches there's no other way to eternal life than through Jesus, through believing in Jesus, through stepping on the elevator, because he and he alone died for your sins. Now, look, if you're already a Christian, I think there's almost a daily decision to to ride the elevator, you know, to say, I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to see where this takes me because it's so easy just to go, well, bad day. What Jesus says, it doesn't seem so good. Maybe I'll just kind of put one foot out of the elevator and, you know, we'll, we'll let the doors close or I'll, 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 maybe I'll just look for the stairs for a minute. You know, Jesus, let, let's go down a level. I'll get off. I'll check the stairs. Maybe that will lead where I want to go. But Jesus is like, here's your choices. You, you, it's me or not me, and only one way is, is good. And then verses 17 and 18 offer more clarification. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. You see, the, the reason that we as Christians must declare the truth of Jesus, that, that he was born, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on a cross, and that he rose again all so that he might save us from our sins, and, and that you must, that we must, well, we must tell people, you must give your life to him. The, the reason is because God doesn't leave any other choice. You're in the elevator or you're not. You believe or you don't. And the outcomes are entirely different. If you believe eternal life, if you don't believe condemnation, eternal condemnation as it just shows us and teaches us elsewhere in the Bible. The reason that we must evangelize a word that people don't really like anymore, the reason we must do it is because God only gives two options, in or out, in eternal life, out condemnation. There's no other choice. Christians who say there's other ways, are not reading the Bible, and if they are, they're rejecting it. And I don't know what the foundation for any of their beliefs are in the first place. 
look, I just pay attention to this now. Because belief is scary. But the reason you should believe anyway is because here is an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. Here is a person who hung out with Jesus for three years, saw him for who he was, saw all that he did, was closely connected in friendship to Jesus. And he just says two options. Believe in this guy that I hung out with. You can have eternal life. Don't believe and you can be condemned forevermore. I said this last week, but it just bears repeating. You don't have any friends that you would say that about. You don't have anybody in your life where you would say, here's your choice. Place your entire faith in them. Give yourself to them. Offer your life to them so that you can have salvation or you can go to hell. You don't have anybody like that. Because there's nobody like that except for Jesus. And all of the people who were closest to him, except for one who chose to reject him, but then later repented of that rejection, 11 out of 12 that hung out with him just about every day, that spent the most time with him, said, like, hey, here's the deal. You got to give your life to this guy if you want to have eternal life. That's it. So when we say, like, as Christians, you know, believe that Jesus is the Savior, yeah, that's super scary, like, man, I don't want to, I don't know what that leads to or where that's going to go or how that's going to end or am I going to be one of those weird Christians? Do I have to vote Republican? You know, I mean, all of these things. You say, well, yeah, I get that it's scary. I can't promise that it will lead to everything that you dreamed of. I can promise it will lead to something better, but I can't promise it will lead to everything you dreamed of. But here's, here's why you should leave, believe because it's, it's affected people and it's affected me. You should believe in Jesus because I promise you that I believe in Jesus and I've had interactions with Jesus and Jesus has changed my life and Jesus has spoken to me and Jesus speaks to me and Jesus leads me and Jesus convicts me when I'm sinful and I've had encounters with Jesus where he's so real that I thought I was going to see the man and I'm not crazy. Uh, I mean, this is why you should believe in Jesus, not because, not because you know, we tell you to, but because we who have experienced Jesus are saying, look, I stepped into the elevator and it changed my life. You should too. Now, here's the question. Why won't people believe? And even more, why will people be so quick to not believe? Given what John has said, given what Chad says, given what we say as Christians to people, why, why are they so quick to reject? And let me just ask this, why are you so slow if you're a Christian to continue to live for Jesus even if you've believed in Jesus? John's going to answer that question in the next two verses, and it's so interesting to me. It's just such a fascinating thing because I can see it to be true, but we don't often identify it as the reason that people reject Jesus so quickly. Last week I talked about how that's annoying to me. We have this great story of Christianity and how incredible the story is. And people will like say, I think I said it just like, nah. You know, like I'm not even going to explore that. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to think about that. I don't even care about that. Like I'm not even going to open a Bible and explore this guy who my friend has told me is the way to eternal life. I'm not even going to think about that. And, and, and why is the question, right? 
I mean, it's dumb, yes, I said that last week, but why is this so common? Why do so many people that I know reject Jesus without ever exploring Jesus? Why do even so many Christians that I know reject what God wants for their lives without ever even really stopping to think about whether or not they should follow Jesus in those things? And here it is, ready? You're not going to like it. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. That's Jesus. That's God. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Five times John uses the term light, which is kind of the uh, the metaphor behind this series, and here he uses it just slightly differently than he's used it in our first two passages we've looked at. When we've looked at it in the first two passages, we, we've seen that he's using it for truth and revelation and the ways of God and, and, and what God's like and all of those things. And he says, in Jesus' light, we know truth and we know wisdom and we have God's revelation through Jesus. But here he uses that same metaphorical language and he just, I think, adds to it just a little. He says it's truth and it's revelation and it's wisdom and it's all that. But all of that has a moral aspect to it. And light here for John becomes that which is morally good. And Jesus is the very center of that. He is the ultimate goodness. In John 8, 12, it says this, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The reason that we have bracelets or had bracelets that said WWJD is because we believe that Jesus is the ultimate good, and we believe that Jesus came to earth to shine his light, and and therefore we should try to live just like him, because anything he did, anything he thought, any way he acted is the best way. And so for us to follow him is to follow the perfect moral example. And so John says the perfect moral example, the perfect being came to earth and he was rejected by that which was his very own. Why? Because people didn't think that it was true, because people didn't believe that he was the Messiah, because it didn't line up with their prophecies, because no, none of that, none of that. Because they loved the darkness, that which is morally not good. They loved that which was evil instead of Jesus. Because, because John tells us, they didn't want their deeds to be exposed as evil. I think that one of the main reasons that people reject Jesus without ever exploring Jesus is because they know somewhere deep in their souls that much of what they do is wrong. And if they give themselves to Jesus, it will be exposed as wrong. They love the things they're doing. And so, like food, as I mentioned earlier, they don't want to explore something different and new, especially because I believe inherently they know that that thing will make them feel guilty. I think there's a millions. Don't even think I'm just throwing that out. I think there's millions of people around the globe, who don't reject Jesus because they don't think that it can be true that he's the savior of the world. They reject Jesus because they like the bad stuff that they do. You say, well, how's that possible? 
just think about some of the bad stuff that our world just embraces as awesome. Lust, sex. Put a slash right there. Lust and sex. Those are seen as like awesome, right? It's like for men, sex becomes the end-all, be-all of life. How often you can have it. And in our Bibles, it tells us that life shouldn't be that way. In fact, we shouldn't even lust, let alone have sex outside of the bond of marriage. And so people that are thinking about giving their lives to Jesus, there's a connection somewhere in their souls, I think, that says, well, then wait a minute. (laughs) You're taking away something that I find extreme pleasure in, that I enjoy. And we as Christians who have been Christians a long time, you know, we associate sex outside of marriage with guilt and and we just are like, well, obviously you wouldn't want to do that and we can see the problem so clearly, clearly, but the, the average American man is not making any of those connections. They're just enjoying it. And here comes a Christian and says, hey, Jesus, if you believe in him, you can have eternal life and I promise it's better. And he's thinking, well, I know Christians Their dating lives look a lot different than my dating life. I don't want anything to do with that. And so you know what they say. I mean, this average man, he says, well, science and Christianity don't go together. That's what they say. You know, well, I knew a a Christian neighbor. I had a Christian neighbor. He was a jerk. I went to that church once, and nobody said hi to me. That's what they say. But really, the reason that they're rejecting Jesus is, is because... They like lust. They like sex or drunkenness. I have people around me that I'm close to that this is what fun is. Fun is being drunk. That's what defines fun, really, is being drunk. And so they know, they know, the the average Christian, the the Christian that's living right, they already know this. American non-Christians know this. They're not going to run around getting drunk. And so, when somebody says, you should become a Christian, wait a minute, Friday night though, what about the tailgating parties? This is my life, this is what I do, this is how I'm social. And so they reject Jesus without ever considering Jesus because they love the darkness. For a lot of people, it's money. Like their lives are just just motivated by trying to have more money. And let's be honest, while people say, you know, Christians don't care or whatever, come on, Christians give a ton of money away, a lot of Christians give 10% of their money to their church, and a lot of non-Christians think, I don't want to become a Christian because I like that 10% quite a lot. I can buy a lot of stuff with the 10% of my income that they're going to try to take from me if I become a Christian. It's a love of money. It's even a love of the way that they earn money sometimes. Like, well, I would have to stop cutting these corners and that that's not gonna work for me because I'm a little dishonest and I, I, you know, I just cheat a little. And if I become a Christian, no more. And so, yeah, I, I like science, you know. Or how about just being selfish? I know Christians have a bad rap, but the, the Christians I know are the least selfish people in the world and they give their time and their money and their energy and they sacrifice in ways that, that uh, you know, I think is almost unimaginable, but I see it. And, and I think that non-Christians know that to 
be a Christian is to live selflessly, to stop some selfishness. You, you give for your church. You give for the, the disenfranchised. You give for the widows and the orphans. And it, it's going to cost you something. And a lot of people, they like their selfishness. They like that darkness. Like, I live for me. And so instead of exploring Jesus, they say, well, all Christians are selfish and they're standing it for the money. I find that funny because I know people have this mentality about pastors that they're in it for the money, and every pastor I know is broke. It's a crazy thing, and, and it just blows me away because it's so much easier to say, well, all those pastors just want our money than it is to say, well, you know, that whole Jesus thing, that sounds great, but I like my selfishness better, and so no. That's more honest, but that's way harder to say, is it not? And that's the reality. And, and here's the, the, the secret, is that I think a lot of Christians fail to live the lives that God wants them to live, not because they believe it's better, not because they, they really can't, not because even they're addicted to certain things, that might be the claim, but because they actually love the darkness. And so they reject the light, the good, the morally good that Christianity offers, not for the reasons that they would give you for staying in their sin, but really because they like it. They like it. We like it. The scary part, and, and I don't want to leave here on a scary note, but the scary part is in First John, John, same author, tells us a different book of the Bible. He says, if you're not walking in the light, you're not a Christian. And the book of 1 John is really written for you to ask the question, wait, am I really a Christian? Is this real? And, and if you are, then to be encouraged by his letter and go, oh, yeah, I line up with that. But there's a lot of Christians in this world, Christians in quotes, that need to just say, wait a minute, I'm living for the darkness, but saying that I love the light doesn't make any sense at all. Because of what John says next, John 3, 21, our last verse, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God, in God. John says, look, if you're a Christian, then you ought to love your bad deeds to be exposed because you want to embrace and move into the light further and further. When you're a Christian, you want your works to be seen because you know that you're walking in God who is the light. There's a problem in the American church today where we just say, well, the light's great. I love the light. The light's awesome. But I'm going to live in darkness because I love my darkness and I love these sins and I love these things. But the light's great. And John says, if you are living for Jesus, then you want your deeds exposed by the light of Jesus, by that which is morally good. It's a humbling thought, I know, for a lot of us, but it's one that we must embrace. Here's, I think, the deal. When Jesus stepped on the scene and lived his 33-ish years of life, it's extremely convicting. I mean, right? Because you know people that are just awesome and they seem too awesome and they're always awesome and, 
and and you you're you always you, your excuse to not be more like them is they must be fake, right? Like that, I have people like that, and I, I could name people. One of my old garbage guys, the most incredible man you'll ever meet. I, I I mean, he's like always nice and always loving, and he's adopted kids, and like he's so awesome that I just want to think of an excuse for how because I'm not as awesome as I mean, this guy's like awesome, you know, and he's real, he's super sincere guy, and it's like he's just incredible. And but when we are when we're around people like that, that the easy thing to do is just go, something must be wrong with them, you know, I mean, he must not treat his wife well at home, you know, I mean, something like that, and, and because we're convicted, like, I should care about people in that way, and here's, here's what I believe, when Jesus stepped onto the scene and lived his perfect life, it left you with two choices, you get on the elevator, you place your belief in him, you say, I'll make a trade, Jesus, you can have my life so that you can give me new life. Or you just reject him because it's convicting. It's like, I can't live the way that I used to live if I truly believe that Jesus is the son of God that came to earth and lived perfectly. I can't. And so, Jesus, you go over there, and I'll be over here living my life. And what I think Christianity should do, uh, excuse me, Christmas should do, Christianity too, but Christmas should do, is force us to ask this question, whether we're Christians or not Christians at all, I think it should force us to ask this question. Do I love the darkness too much? And is the darkness standing in the way of me coming to the light? If you're a Christian, and usually I talk to non-Christians first at the end of my sermons, but if you're a Christian, I want to just say to you first, ask yourself the question, do you love the darkness too much? And is that preventing you from living the life that God wants you to live? And if you do love the darkness too much, here's what you do. You say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I repent. Please, please, please help me to hate the darkness. Help me to reject the darkness and embrace the life that you have for me. If you're not a Christian, here's, here's the question. It's, it's not so much a moral question, um, but it's a question of rejection. Ask this, are you actually rejecting Jesus because you don't really believe that he's the savior of the world? Or are you rejecting Jesus because you love being drunk or you love sex or you love all of the other things that you know somewhere inside of you are evil and, and you might maybe have to get rid of if you give your life to Jesus? Because I don't want you to leave and I don't want the people who will listen online later to just go, well, I'm rejecting Jesus because, and then they fill in the blank with a, a fake reason. I want people to have to reject Jesus for the real reason if they're going to reject him. And it's because, just admit it, you love darkness and you don't want that darkness to be exposed as evil. And so Christmas just forces us to ask the question. When God showed up on the scene, when he was born and placed in a manger, when that happened, immediately the question came, do I love darkness or will I accept the light? When Jesus came, he said, I love everybody. I love all of you. Even if you're wrapped up in the darkness, even if your life is full of darkness, I love you and I'm going to die for you. But you must make a decision to believe or not believe. And it's going to come down to this. Do you love darkness too much or not? And so when you go home and you look at your nativities, you usually think, oh, that's nice, Bethlehem, star, angels. I want you to ask from now on, do I love the darkness too much? Do I love it too much? 
And is it causing me to reject the light, Jesus, that which is perfectly good? Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for coming here, uh, even though you knew you would be rejected. And you knew that people would make the excuse of a million things, a million different excuses about why they would reject you, but ultimately, God, they uh, would reject you because they love their sin. And I pray, God, for any person listening right now, God, that's not a Christian, I pray, Lord, that they would give up the excuses and they would, they would truly just examine, Lord, whether or not you really are the Savior. And Lord, I don't know, maybe they'll come to the conclusion that you're not. Maybe they'll reject the eyewitness testimony and they'll reject my, my testimony now, Lord. Um, but Lord, I, I pray that they would make an honest decision about it and not just reject you because they love sin. And, and for those, Lord, who are Christians, I just pray and I ask, God, that they would, uh, that we, we, me too, Lord, we would just ask whether or not we love the sins that we so readily and easily commit. And if we do, God, I pray that we would we'd be convicted and maybe you need to bring us tears and sorrow. But then, Lord, I pray that we would repent and we would walk further into the light, Lord. God, we want to be at the very center of the light. I want us to be in the very center of the light. And so, God, help us to reject darkness so that we may move deeper into our relationship with you. Jesus, I love you and I pray these things in your name. Amen.